0: Welcome to Leadership from Scratch, episode four. At this rate, I'll probably be 92 by the time that we publish episode number 21, but we're still going to get there. Uh, I've had literally bronchitis for two months on and off, and I didn't want to record with whoever's listening, wondering why is he coughing every five seconds. So we're finally on the up and up, and the media team here. Uh, especially Mason. I've talked about him before, but he did such a good job of even upgrading the podcast more. Now we have great lighting, uh, even better equipment, so hopefully that helps a little bit with the quality, although the content is still always the most important part. So what are we going to talk about today? Uh, In in the past few episodes, we've kind of talked about essentially what leadership is in as scientific of a way as possible, just because we all know it's kind of an abstract term. Then we talked about how to figure out kind of your personal leadership style, strengths, and qualities. And then we kind of went impromptu off of the map and we're just talking about failure and how to, how to be an example to other people when things don't go as you planned. So we're back on track today and we're going to go through one of my favorite topics, which is culture. Another very ambiguous term that is really hard to empirically define. So hopefully we can kind of run through what really is culture as far as how is it real and talk about why it's important to focus on culture in a business context, which in my opinion, it's one of the most underrated levers that a leader can pull to improve a business. And finally, we'll we'll talk about kind of how do you transform a culture, going through a few things like why can't you totally change it? Why can't you do a 180-degree turn? And then how do you influence it to make it as good as you possibly can once it's already been defined? So kind of the first part, like what even is culture, right? You hear it all the time when you're talking about Great businesses like Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, or even great teams like the Warriors or the Heat or the 49ers, especially this year. Go Brock Purdy. We're doing great. Uh, So I guess culture, the way the the, the person who's defined it best, his name's Edgar Schein. He was an MIT professor. Uh, He's got a book called uh, Organizational Leadership and Culture which is kind of the seminal book as far as cultural study goes in the academic literature. And so if you are really going to geek out about culture like I do, then I highly recommend that that you read that book. But essentially, he kind of goes into a... He gives a definition, which I'm going to just read the definition, but it's pretty dense, so I'm going to try to uh, put it through my own lens and kind of give you how I, I think that actually would work in an applicable sense, so... Shine through all his research, he he boiled culture down to this. He said, it is a pattern of shared basic assumptions, which are invented, discovered, or developed by a given group as it learns to cope with problems of adapting to the environment and integrating new things, which like people and ideas, integrating them internally. And those adaptations and learning has to have worked well enough to be considered Valid And therefore is taught to new members of the group as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. So in a much shorter way, it's just the assumptions that are shared among the group that have worked to solve problems. So we kind of go back to this problem because you remember how in the first episode, if you were there, we talked about how leadership is literally just helping other people to solve problems. And so Shine, actually, he he talks about kind of this coin, and there are two sides to the coin. And so on one side, you have the leadership, and on the other side, you have the culture, and they kind of influence each other. So what do I mean by that? Well, imagine that uh, someone starts a company. This person, they have their own predispositions as far as, kind of how they go about solving problems you could call these um values perhaps but a more accurate word is assumption because in some respects values are aspirational well what do you mean by that ben though i mean so values are things that you would aspire to act like because you can think of a value as like a pattern of behavior and we've talked about this before too to solve just a subset of of problems so like your values are, if you, let's say that there was like a spin board of all the possible problems that uh, you could confront, and if you only had to pick four ways to behave or patterns of behavior to kind of try to overcome those problems, and and you were going to spin the and you didn't know what problem you were going to get, the essentially the values would be the things that you think would solve problems best. In life, So uh, two episodes ago, we talked about like Steve Kerr and how he's a coach of the Warriors, and he picked four values that he wanted his team to embody, right? And his four, four values were joy, uh, competitiveness, compassion, and mindfulness. So as far as he could gather, whatever problem he was faced with in life, he was most likely going to use one of those patterns of behavior, the joy, the competitiveness, the mindfulness, or uh, whatever the other one was uh, to, to try to solve that problem, right? And so every founder of a company or of an organization is going to have different values. No one's values are going to be the same or assumptions that they are going to use to solve the problem. So circling back to why is it aspirational? Well, people might say certain things that they value, but in practice, they may actually act a different way and they may solve problems in a way differently than they say they would. And so that's why we talk about assumptions instead of values, because assumptions are what people do. They actually act out. Values are just kind of what people say. And obviously, actions speak louder than words, right? So when the leader is starting the company, and if the company is successful, obviously, whoever the founder is, their assumptions or the way they solve problems are, are going to work. so people who are integrated into this organization are going to follow the lead of the leader because what the leader does works. And so therefore, they will then use those same things or integrate those same assumptions and act that way. So like Steve Kerr, he is one of the most successful coaches of all time. And if he pushes people to, if they have some adversity... Like, let's say that there's a bad practice, and so one of those assumptions he's going to pull out is joy, that joy is going to be a way to solve the problem of bad practice. And so he cracks a joke, and everybody laughs, uh, and then practice goes better after that. Everybody will have seen that joy solved the problem of the bad practice. And so next time there's a bad practice, even if Steve Kerr isn't there, Someone else is going to crack a joke or say something funny or, you know, you see Steph Curry, if, if you watch NBA at all, you, you see Steph Curry do stuff like this all the time. Like, next time you're watching a Warriors game, if you ever do, if you aren't, please start watching them, Uh, even though this year has been a little bit worse than previous years. But just watch the way he warms up and see all the funny, crazy stuff he does. Steph Curry is one of the greatest players of all time. Easily top 10, in my opinion, but... He did make the top 75 list. So officially, he's top 75. But he's doing things like fake golfing and he's coming up behind people and messing with them and he's yelling and like shooting half court shots and all this stuff. And so that works perfectly within the culture that Steve Kerr established as the leader there, right? That joy. So the founder or the leader, they essentially dictate what assumptions. People will integrate for the rest of time. So culture in a sense is is almost like, it's like a personality. And what I mean by that is people are, from what I can see, are born with inherent personality traits. And a lot of times these personality traits aren't inherently good or bad. They just are. Some people are much more conscientious than others. Other people may be more uh, open or flexible or, you know, funny. Like, everybody has these different things and these ways that they behave that make up how they're perceived by other people. And the older you get, the the more those personality traits kind of become less malleable, right? Like, you, you can't change them they're immutable in a sense the older you get it's almost like cement that hardens over time and so the older someone is the less you can kind of change their personality Uh, organizations are the same the 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 founder kind of sets the cement as far as like here are the assumptions that work here is here are our traits right And, and over time as the organization grows uh, that personality becomes solidified, uh, but every organization is going to have a different personality that's established by the founder. So, for example, if let's say that someone that was very serious with this Warriors example, maybe one of their values or core assumptions, that the way that they say solve problems is just seriousness. So you see Steph Curry before the game, he's dinking around doing all this fun stuff. This other player is traded to him, and maybe he starts to... He, he, he is deadpan throughout all of warmups, And he's super serious, and he's got that kind of Mamba Kobe mentality where he doesn't talk to anybody. He's not a team player. Well, trying to change the culture, the Warriors' culture, to bring someone like that into the fold is really difficult. And it probably wouldn't be a good fit. It would create a lot of friction, a lot of bad energy and the performance of the organization would probably uh, go down because of that, it would suffer. And so that's kind of the other side of this leadership culture coin is the leader determines the culture, and then the culture then determines the future leaders that come in because people are just inherently going to be more successful in an environment that matches their personality because it's going to reduce friction. And allow for more emotional and intellectual energy to go into aligning with actually fixing the problems the organization is solving. Instead of trying to change something that they inherently cannot change or it takes a huge amount of energy to change. And so that's where the relationship with leadership and culture comes in. Is the leader creates the culture and then the culture creates the leaders. So. So Shine goes into like the the different parts of culture and if any of you have taken any type of leadership courses whether in your undergrad or MBA you're going to be familiar with Shine's kind of his model of culture uh, which it kind of has three le- three three levels, right? And we've talked about two of them already. And so the first level of culture is the artifacts or the symbols. And so this is kind of what you see when you... When you walk into the an organization or you're around a group in the organization, it's kind of the visual part. It's externally what you see with your eyes. And in the book, he kind of gives an example, and I'll go off on a tangent here. So as Shine is describing culture, he talks about two of the businesses that he worked closely with. So Shine's interesting because you kind of have this dichotomy in the world especially in business where people kind of put preeminent value on one or the other of these two things. So you have like the practitioners. So those are like the entrepreneurs, the people that are actually in the field, the people that kind of experiment and just through trial and error learn what works in the industry. And then on the flip side, you have people, the academics and the professors, people who study and and conduct lab experiments to really boil down what actually works in an indisputable way unfortunately because in the world of business there are so many extraneous variables oftentimes it's really hard for these two groups to connect Uh, and even sometimes there is enmity or resentment or bitterness between the two groups because the entrepreneurs will say, oh, the professors, they just have their noses stuck in books. They don't know how the real world world works. And then the professors will say, oh, these entrepreneurs make all these claims, but they have no data to make the claims that they make. It's just all anecdotal, and, and there's no evidence, right? Shine is awesome because he did both. He's really the father of cultural research in academia, but he also worked with tens of hundreds of companies throughout his career, consulting them on their culture and their systems and processes and so he's kind of the perfect person to take the best of both worlds and really uh, give suggestions on how to enact cultural change so in his book he uh, the two groups that he talks about most there's one company it's called Sibageige I hope I'm saying that right and there's another one called DEC and these, the reason he gives these two examples is because they're kind of foils of each other, right? They're like direct opposites. And he kind of shows how two cultures, although different, can be successful. And so kind of on another thought train over here. When we're talking about culture as, as a personality and kind of those, <coughs> excuse me, if you were to describe a uh, describe a culture, every culture would have specific traits, right? Like a personality. And just like a personality, you it isn't like at its base level good or bad. Everyone it's just different. These traits that each culture has, they're not good or bad, they just are, right? They're neutral. And so when he describes these cultures, neither one is better or worse than the other just at its you probably will subjectively think it is because one or the other will resonate with you as far as which culture you would rather work in but that just gives you kind of an idea of how where your personality would align with more so going back to these artifacts and symbols which is the first level of culture so dec is the one company so their, their artifacts, when he walked into their building for the first time, they were an industrial office building. They had really, like, functional furniture and, like, open office architecture. So not a lot of, like, pomp and circumstance, right? Just, just very kind of minimalistic. And he saw the people, the way they're interacting with each other, which is another form of artifacts. They had informal dress and informal manners. He saw food everywhere. He said food was involved in everything that they were doing. And interestingly enough, there were no symbols of rank. So no special rooms, no bigger offices, no corner offices with the big view or the nice windows. Uh, There were no, like, executive parking spaces or anything like that. So it really was conveying a message that the culture was, was very flat, right? That status wasn't what was valued most. Siba on the other hand, the other company I was working with, when he went there, they're building very large buildings, very formal buildings. The heavy doors were always closed. Some words he used to describe it, opulent, lavish, elegant, very expensive furniture, which is completely opposite of D.C.'s furniture. Uh, na- there were nameplates on each door that people could close or open if they chose. They even had, like, a light system with their offices. Like, it was green, you could walk in. Red, you could not walk in. Someone was doing deep work, and if the light was off, they weren't in for the day. And in the the hallways of these buildings, it was quiet in the hallways. Like, you you were walking around, and there was kind of... You know how you kind of walk in somewhere, and you know, oh, I'm supposed to be quiet, like, because it's quiet. And you kind of see people tiptoeing around or respecting the silence that's how he felt when he walked in here Uh, people acted very polite so those informal manners that D.E.C. had on the other side very formal manners here in Sibagaygi and uh, they had elegant really nice food so you think of the other company D.E.C. they've got snacks everywhere probably like Frito bags and like all these finger foods and things and soda and at Sibagaygi it's like it's good food And so you can already tell, you can already start to get a sense if you try to imagine that, visualize that in your mind, kind of those pictures of walking into those two companies. Obviously, you're going to get a very different emotional feel, and that is going to inform you on how things are done around here. And that's another really easy way to kind of think about culture. If you're like, I have no idea what it means to a set of shared assumptions that solve problems, like how do I apply that in the culture of my family or my business or my church or wherever you're trying to make culture better. And just think of how are things done around here if you're trying to figure out what the current culture is. How are things done around here? You can kind of tell already the DEC organization is very informal and Siba is very formal. And so when you walk into those, you know kind of what's an appropriate way to act, Right. For example, in DEC, if I was going in there and I was going to have a meeting, it'd probably be totally fine for me to, like, crack a joke or, you know, tap somebody on the shoulder or laugh just from seeing how their office space looks. Whereas in Sibagagi, if I were to walk in there, I would probably know, okay, I need to shake hands. Uh, I need to be probably uh, a little bit, what would you say, kind of, like, muted, uh, a little more quiet, a little more reserved. And def- and have deference towards people who I could tell were were portrayed by these artifacts, the size of their office, the type of food that they have, their nameplate, who people admire and revere in the company, who because they have status, they have external status. Whereas in DEC, there was no visible status except for the CEO. That was what um, Shine said. Nobody had any visible status other than the CEO, but. That was okay because he didn't take him too too seriously. I think his name was Ken, Ken Olson or something. Anyway, he just walked around and and he kind of acted like one of the guys there. Which again, remember, the leader sets the culture, so that's no surprise, right? He's informal, therefore, uh, his company is is informal. However, just by looking at artifacts of a culture, you're not going to be able to ascertain those those assumptions those deep-seated patterns of behavior that solve problems. Now, why why is this important that you can't just do it from the artifacts? Well, Shine learned an interesting lesson when he went into both of these companies when he was trying to change the culture. And what he learned was he didn't know the assumptions, and so he just started trying to solve the problems the way that, that he saw fit based on kind of like his own assumptions, right? And what that looked like was one of the things that he noticed when he went into to DEC was that they would be very argumentative in their meetings. So they were like essentially hurling insults at each other and things like that, and it would get really contentious. But outside of the meeting, no one had any problems. It was like, get back to laughing and joking. You get into these meetings and you realize. And so he tried to solve their problems by teaching them manners and etiquette. <laughs> and what was for him fascinating about that before he realized and kind of figured out this cultural framework is that didn't work. It didn't do anything. He could not stop the people from fighting or yelling at each other or destroying people's ideas in those meetings he could not get them to have manners and etiquette why because that one of their personality traits one of those basic assumptions was that informality and here's a really important lesson that we all need to learn about culture and it just becomes more true the longer that your organization has been around is you cannot try to solve cultural issues outside of those cultural traits you can only try to work within the bounds and try to work within the positive sides of those traits. If you think of those neutral traits as like they each have a positive and a negative side, right? And this comes from The Critical Few, which is a book written by my my granddad. He's worked with culture specifically for like 30 years he was at McKenzie and he was on the board of McKinsey and then he started his own consulting firm and then that was purchased by PwC. He's written like 10 books, including Wisdom of Teams, which is one of the most famous uh, organizational business books on, on teaming. So he, he knows his stuff, right? And he talks about this whenever they go into companies. Uh, they try to figure out these traits, but then you also have to look at the positive and the negative side of the trait. Uh, because if it's biased one way or the other, then it's it's not really a trait right because a trait has to be neutral so a, a really good example i think of a trait just to to kind of try to communicate that is think about generosity generosity has a really good part in the sense that it can engender trust uh it exceeds people's expectations and it can make people feel really valued and grateful and can also kind of be uh the nebulous of, of long-term loyalty. On the flip side, though, you think about if you're too generous to your kid, even like think of if you're a parent and you have a child and you're too generous and you just give them everything without any type of work or effort required, then the child can become spoiled and a spoiled child or a spoiled employee can spoil the work environment or a spoiled teammate can spoil the team. So generosity is a neutral trait because it has a positive and a negative side. Now, you might say, well, what about honesty? Well, honesty, in my opinion, doesn't really have a negative side. Um, I mean, you could I guess you could say you could hurt people's feelings, but I don't really think that's too applicable in a sense. Honesty is more of like a... It's not really a value, but it's almost like a truth, and a truth is not going to be one of your personality traits. So, keep that in mind. So, anyway with uh, what Shine realized with this is that you can't work outside of the bounds of, of those personality traits. You have to, to work within it, right? And so uh, instead of him trying to teach people manners and etiquette, um, he allowed those discussions to continue to happen, but he instituted a policy of, like, making sure that everybody was heard People were still going to argue, but at least they could be heard and they would, like, write the things on the board and make sure that they were attacking the ideas, not the people. And that worked way better. And that, as opposed to trying to teach them to not argue, they could still argue but just tried to work within those bounds. So I think that's another example of how, and we're going to talk about, like, how you can actually go through and workshop your culture and improve it. Uh, But that's just an example of how, you know, kind of, It's culture is such a soft word and everybody kind of it's kind of like leadership. If you ask twenty different people what culture meant, we give you twenty different answers. So that's why it's so important to really break it down into what it is and how to figure it out and then how to how to actionably change it or else we kinda run into like that only the practitioner who doesn't rely on any evidence. So you can kind of become a charlatan and make any claims that you want. So we're trying to avoid that. And, and work in that middle ground of the literature and the, uh, the practitioner. So um, the next level after artifacts and symbols of culture uh, is the values. And so you're going to be able to figure out the values as you spend more time kind of looking at the company and what you're seeing is going on. Uh, so... For example, as Shine spent more and more time with these companies, so let's use DEC as an example, um, he saw that people were essentially complaining in meetings, but uh, they it was interesting because they would complain about the meetings, but then they would also complain about needing meetings. And they also... You know hierarchy, because you you remember how the CEO was the only one who had a visible status. So hierarchy was more about like the convenience than it was about the privates. Like you needed a hierarchy to get things done in some cases, but other than that, it it had no use. And you it it wasn't about pe- treating people differently. It was just about getting things done. So with all of those things that I just mentioned and previously said, the values that he noticed were like people valued personal responsibility. So. If you propose an idea, then you had to do it. Or uh, they valued doing the right thing, um, which was, like, again, to go along with them not valuing hierarchy. If someone technically above you disagreed with you, the CEO still thought that everybody should do it anyway. Like, pretty much ask for forgiveness rather than per- permission. That was something he valued, and so that's uh, something that you, you kind of saw more within the the depths of the culture. Uh, and, and while those are values, those, you know, those are important because they are what people seem to think is important, but you even have to go a a level deeper there to figure out the actual assumptions, which remember is how people act. So the artifacts are what you see. The values are really what people say works to solve problems, but then the assumptions are kind of these buckets of how people actually act. To solve problems if that makes sense so let's talk about let's kind of get into a little bit of how if you are kind of looking at at your own culture right let's say that that you right now whether you're it's your family again or your business or the subculture of just your team if you're kind of wondering how can I make my culture better? How can I improve it and make it more of what I want it to be? I'm actually going to kind of take you through some workshopping that I've done with a few companies as far as how you can kind of, number one, figure out what your culture is, what its traits are, and then two, how to work within those traits to actionably make changes that will make your culture better. So the first thing that you need to do if you're going to try to describe your culture is boil everything down, boil those 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 artifacts that you see, the values that you hear, and then the behaviors that you see, and kind of bucket those into three to five traits, just like personality traits. So... You're going to start doing that through interviews. And so if you have this kind of bandwidth within your organization, then go through and just start talking to people. Now, importantly, and then make sure you have a way to kind of uh, record or have a compendium of this qualitative data. So the questions you're probably going to be tempted to ask are like, okay, what is the culture? Um, how do you see the culture as a good thing? How do you see the culture as a bad thing? What are the traits? But you can't ask things like that because the culture, again, it's so deep that you're really going to only be able to find those assumptions as you look at stories that people are telling and you find connections, patterns and themes within those stories. Uh, and so one so there's kind of a list of questions that you could ask people and I'll just go through a, a couple of them that I've used. Um, and some of these can be found in in the critical few book as well. One that I really like is what do you tell neighbors at a weekend barbecue about why you like working at NL? Or another one is what what was your best day of work? What does that look like? or what do you love? about coming to work or even another one is like tell me about a time that you were felt most excited alive or energized at work and the reason we ask questions like this is because it elicits emotions and if you're going to want to positively drive your culture then you need to make sure that you are leveraging behaviors that uh are connected to positive emotional experiences. That's kind of the positive side of these neutral traits, right? Is we want to get people's positive emotional juices flowing because positive emotion is what motivates people much more than, than money or any type of incentives. It's really meaning, purpose, and what am I feeling at work? Or what am I feeling in my home? Or what am I feeling at practice? So you ask people about their positive emotional experiences, try to figure out kind of if there's a common thread between everybody's emotional experiences that becomes one of these traits these personality traits now you also have to ask them about like their negative experiences and but you don't really want to focus on that you just want to kind of know because that'll also give you because you'll be able to find traits on the positive and the negative side of, of the culture there right so once you ask those questions, so I'll give an example from the book. So there was a uh, business that uh, my granddad worked with, and they asked him these questions and then went through these interviews. And they they found three traits that explained the, the culture perfectly, the kind of like the the assumptions as far as how people operated. And the first one was thrifty. The positive side of being thrifty was that it freed up capital for like investments or returns. So... Obviously, when you're thrifty, you have more money around that you can put into important stuff, and you're uh, avoiding waste, which is helpful because you you don't have just a bunch of not uh, trivial things laying around or whether that's physical or intellectual. But the negative side is it, obviously that company was becoming so focused on cutting costs that it was demotivating people because essentially they were... Uh, Devaluing people, money became more important than people. So one example was that they told someone told a story of how only people at a VP level were allowed to fly first class. Everybody under that was had to fly economy. So their account executives had to fly economy. Tough thing about that is the account executive is the client facing of all of all of really where your revenue is coming. And part of the business model with this company was really the amount of revenue generated was directly tied to how personal of a relationship these account executives had with those accounts. And so account executives who flew more generated more money for the business. Now, unfortunately, because of the thriftiness of the company, uh, the account executives were de-incentivized to fly because they were flying an economy class, and that was very uncomfortable for them. So one of the behavior changes that they made, which we'll talk about how to get to the behavior changes in in a second, but is that they just lowered that threshold and said all account executives can fly uh, first class. And that increased the revenue by some X amount of percent. That ended up being millions, millions of dollars in profit for the company that year. And so that's kind of an example of how one of these traits has positive sides and negative sides but if you can mitigate the negative and accentuate the positive you can make huge leaps and strides in your business right so uh, another trait that they had was like consensus driven so for example in this company on the positive side it encouraged joint ownership of decisions and commitments right so everybody like had skin in the game Uh, it, it allowed for transparency and trust and the decisions could be vetted like um, and informed because everybody had a part in the decision the bad side of that is it took a long time to make decisions and then um, no one person had like individual ownership and so it led to like finger pointing and blame because you didn't really know who owned the project because everybody had their hands in it so that was a, that's another example of a trait and finally this company was also perfectionist so Obviously they had high quality and consistency on the positive side, but they their agility and innovation was impeded again, because they spent so much time trying to make it perfect that they kind of had analysis, paralysis and, and could never bring any, anything quickly to, to market. So they also weren't very nimble or flexible. So you can kind of see how these traits are really important to get an idea of like the assumptions that are that are driving the culture or how things are done around here, right? But that just knowing those things isn't going to be tactical for you because obviously the whole goal of, of the podcast today is to take this the culture, the way things are done, and distill it down into what can I do today that can fix or make the culture better, make my workplace a better place to work for me. So to do that, you have to move from traits to behavioral implementations, right? Things that you can change that will change the way people act for the better. So how do you identify those? So as you've been going through and doing all of these interviews with the people on your team, one really important question you should be asking them and I should have brought this up earlier is asking all these people who do you go to for help the most so strip down dude strip down all of the hierarchy all of the given titles because those aren't your actual leaders those are what are called appointed leaders so somebody who had leadership gave them authority but real power and influence is going to come from your informal leaders and these people don't have to be appointed to certain titles but these are the people that drive the engine of your business and the most simple way to figure out who these people are because an informal leader is going to have really good emotional beat so they're going to have emotional intelligence they're going to kind of kind of know what's going on and they also need to have operational understanding and figure out and be able to know logistically what's moving the business. And when you kind of have those two things together, you have somebody who's driving the business, whether or not they have a VP title or not. But it's, you know, it's hard to figure that out. But a really easy way that my granddad found through his experience is just to ask, you know, who who do you go to for help the most? And the names that pop up the most, those are going to be your informal leaders. So you then take those informal leaders and you're going to bring them into a workshop. And one of the questions, and you're going to have figured out kind of those traits, right, Um, through your interviews, and you're going to have taken all that information from all those questions you asked them about, what do you like about work? Tell me a story you're proud of. Tell me what excites you. Tell me a time you felt stressed at work. Tell me something that happens often that you really don't like. And then you're going to have your traits in that meeting. And then you're going to ask these people, what is already happening at work that exemplifies the positive side of this trait or what's happening that exemplifies the negative part of this trait? Right. And then you'll kind of have an idea of 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 what's happening. And so one example that happened at a company with these informal leaders. Is. um One of the traits was essentially they kind of had this one of those that consensus trait, but they also had this like trait of essentially respect or deference. And so one of the positive things about those consensus traits was that everybody um, was involved in the decision. And so you could get really good ideas if everybody was involved in the decision. But the 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 negative side of the respect part was people were scared to speak up if they disagreed with an idea. And so you weren't getting honest opinions or answers. So what, what would happen is you would have all these decisions that were made by consensus, uh, but then the best decisions weren't being made and a lot of people felt a lot of negative emotion because they felt like they couldn't speak up even though the decision was a consensus decision. So you can imagine, like, put yourself in that situation. Like, those are complete, that creates so much friction within the business, and no wonder their culture was struggling and people felt sad at work. So what these informal leaders in this behavioral workshop came up with once they talked about what already was happening, so they went through and they're like, okay, yeah, Everybody's involved in these meetings, which is awesome. But then they figured out, okay, people don't speak up. And so then they came up with the behavioral implementation, right? The thing that they were going to do to accentuate this positive part, which everybody's involved in the decision. We want people to, we want to do that even more and to mitigate the bad part, which is, but we want people to feel like they can speak up as much as possible. We want to minimize people not speaking up. And they came up with this crazy thing and it's something that stuck. And that's a really important thing when you're coming up with these behavioral implementations to change the culture, is you need to find something that sticks. And usually that can kind of happen with like a symbolic act or something that symbolizes a behavioral change, which for them was in these meetings, they gave people, it was either a paddle or a flag, I can't remember, but something colored that they held up. And before they made a decision, they had everybody, green means I agree, yellow means I'm unsure, and red meant that I do not agree. And everybody held those up before a final decision and go-ahead was made. And if people had a yellow or a red, then they then had to speak up and talk about what they were actually thinking. And so it was just an easy way to make it be a safer environment because usually you wouldn't be the only one that had a red or a yellow. Like and And then you could kind of jointly go in, talk about the problems until everybody came to a consensus on what was correct. And that really helped help the culture, right? So, so recap, you ask what behaviors are happening on a day-to-day basis that are already demonstrating the positive and the negative. And then you figure out something that you can do that you can implement, like these paddle things. How? What can we implement that goes with the grain of how our people behave and what they feel good about doing rather than working against it? So... This whole process of, like, asking these questions where people talk about stories, distilling that into traits, taking your emotional uh, and informal leaders and workshopping it until you find three to five behaviors or symbolic acts that you will implement that will help your culture, that's going to take a while, and it's going to take a few iterations. It's not just going to be a one-and-done thing. So an example of that is... um. We just did this uh, with a company with a sales team, and the tough thing of that. So the sales team, um, they had had like six or seven years of just amazing success, constant growth. They had pretty much a plug-and-play model, and then uh, within the industry, uh, things changed, especially in in the market where this sales company was predominantly located, with the legislation, and so. Essentially, it kind of changed the way that the sales team had to do things, and it happened right before uh, their kind of their main selling season, and so they had to totally change, pivot, and change markets, and and move to a completely different side of of the the country. And it was a tough year, right? Because you you have this plug and play model, and all of a sudden, there's a lot of change. And something interesting about culture, because it gets cemented over time, when there's a big change, there tends to then be elicited from that a lot of negative emotion, a lot of frustration, uncertainty. Uh, There can be kind of back talking, there can be resentment, bitterness. um, And and that negative emotion is going to be almost more detrimental than anything else to a business. Because so my granddad always draws this thing. It's uh, He draws it on napkins all the time. It's essentially like the three pillars of business, right? So first you have your strategy, and then you have your operations, and then you have your culture. And so the, your your strategy is essentially like your path. It's kind of where you want to go. It's how you differentiate yourself. It's how are you going to win, right? It's like your plan. So think of it as like a map. Your operations are how you are going to, essentially, it's your vehicle. It's your way of moving on that path. It's the logistics. It's 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 kind of like the nitty-gritty of how you get to that point. But the culture, that's your fuel. That's your gas. So the tough thing is with a lot of business leaders, whether or not you're seasoned, it, it usually happens with younger or less experienced, uh, founders and CEOs but it can happen to anybody is when you have change that creates this negative emotion you're either going to focus on your strategy or your operations right so your strategy you're like okay we're going to change our our product offering we're going to change our market uh, we are going to change Anything that relates to how you're going to win. But most often it happens in the form of your offering. uh, So what you're giving people or where you're essentially giving it to them. Then your operations kind of, if there is negative emotion, people will try to incentivize them by changing like the pay structure. Right. So let me throw money at you in a different way or throw more money at you or kind of the org chart. So let's kind of give people different positions and things like that. And they completely ignore this culture part or the fuel part, the emotional part. The tough thing about that is, remember back to the analogy, if you have a perfect map and you have the fastest car in the world, but the car has no gas, you're not going to go anywhere. And so then when these changes happen, these businesses fail. Seen that often, at least my granddad did in in working with businesses, and I've seen it at at a few of the companies that I've worked with or for as well. But the cool thing about what this sales team did is after the selling season, after all this major change and this negative emotion started to boil up, what we did is, is we first of all went in and workshopped this culture part or the fuel part. And so we went and we got all the informal leaders and we started asking them those questions, right? We Like what has made you feel good about working here? Tell me a time you felt like you were super prideful or, or you felt a lot of positive emotion. Like what do you tell people when you go home at night? What do you talk about at dinner with your family when you're talking about work? Um, and then from those kind of questions, we were able to kind of boil it down to these traits, right? That they had. And, uh, then we workshop the positive and negative sides of those traits and the cool thing is is and this my granddad talked about this as far as like his experience goes is a big part of getting this negative emotion back to positive and filling that fuel tank it's not only the traits themselves or the behaviors that you implement which what we found with uh one of the traits that we had at this company was kind of this informality and then you know kind of trust was another one and then another one was being idealistic and then another one was like working hard and playing hard and this is kind of what we came up with what we workshopped with with the informal leaders and so it's not just the traits themselves and what they what they decided they wanted to do as a behavioral implementation was to kind of increase the collaboration. And so they all decided that they they wanted to make a mission statement together and that that was going to help them because one of their, I guess, one of the problems for the sales team was they wanted to recruit more. But they they figured out through this whole process that they weren't aligned on, like, what their vision was. Uh, but because there was, like, a lot of trust and idealism that was part of their their personality that they could create a mission statement together and that would create more trust and it was working within the bounds of like that idealistic nature that they have of kind of thinking high level and they did that and and it incre- and their negative emotions because in this company dude there was so much like negativity and uncertainty and frustration and it totally flipped the script where people were excited and positive and, and happy again which and it gave fuel to this car that now that car is back on track right which is super awesome um so But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that they made this mission statement. Like, You couldn't have just come from the top level, from like the executive team and said, okay, make a mission statement. It would not have solved the problem, although the end behavior would have been the same. It's critical that you workshop with your informal leaders because that is what is going to get the wheel moving. It's almost like a water wheel, but instead of creating electricity, it's creating positive emotion. It's giving your your company fuel and your team fuel. And your family fuel. And so however you can kind of take this framework tactically and apply it, whether that's at home at work or on your team, make sure that you are in discussions with the informal leaders and that the people are involved in figuring out the traits and then implementing the be choosing and implementing the behaviors because what happens is, Your informal leaders through this process are going to feel much better about what's happening. They're going to feel a lot of pride and satisfaction. And then because they feel that, because they felt like they were part of the idea, they're going to go through, like for the sales team, the mission statement now, all these informal leaders are talking to everybody else about it. And because the informal leaders feel so energized about it, and because they are the ones who had the influence before. Remember, your informal leaders are the people that everyone goes to for help to solve the problems which makes them a leader because what's a leader? It's somebody who solves problems for other people. So now all your leaders are going through and they're talking about this mission statement in a super awesome way, and then everybody gets energized and the whole culture is lifted up to higher than it was before, before all this bad stuff happened. And so uh, this has happened time and time again with company, with organizations, over and over and over again. So Peter Drucker had had a a famous phrase, it's culture eats strategy for breakfast. And culture eats strategy for breakfast because your strategy won't get you anywhere unless your people feel good about what they're doing at work. And as leaders, that is our primary responsibility is to take care of the people that are working for us. So Simon Sinek has an awesome quote. It's like, we work for the people that we employ. The they don't work for us. And this is kind of a great way that you can actually implement it to, to how you can do it is is you can let the people be involved in coming up with what makes the culture better and solving the problems. Because if 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 they're involved in solving the problem, then you're going to have engaged people because the biggest problem that we see in business today, as far as statistics goes, almost 80% of people aren't engaged in their work, and it's billions and billions and billions of dollars that are lost from the economy simply because people aren't working. And uh, Elon Musk, he he gave kind of a little thing on on what the economy actually is. He talks about how money is just like a placeholder, right? People who study finance, you know, it's just kind of a symbol of what actually the value, the goods and services that are within the economy. And that, at the end of the day, that's us all doing work. It's labor, right? And the more engaged people are, the more work we're all going to be willing to do. And the more work we do, the better off we all are because there's more resources for us to share with one another. So I guess at, at the end of all this, there's so much more that I could talk about with culture and I was hesitant, not only because I was sick to do this podcast, but I was hesitant because I wanted to make sure that I got everything and I don't even think that I that I that I got everything. There's so much more that I could talk about. But really I, I guess the goal of all this is um culture is gonna be the the biggest and most important thing that you're probably not thinking about that if you did think about it, it would help your business. Because people who manage its power can supercharge the performance of their organizations. Like think about the greatest teams like greatest businesses, greatest religious groups, or even the greatest countries. Almost always, their culture becomes a way to describe why they are more successful than their counterparts. Think of the culture of Apple, how uh, they have they, they just beautiful design and easy to use Is, that's like who they are. Or like the Golden State Warriors, that joy and that cohesiveness that they have. Or like on the flip side, the Miami Heat, that kind of grit and grind culture. Or even like if you're from Utah, think about like cultural aspects of the LDS Church. When you ask somebody, hey, do you know like a Mormon or a member of the Church of Jesus Christ? They're probably always going to say those people are happy and really good people. At least that's what I hear. Um, so the most prominent dynastic organizations all have strong, unique cultures. But boiling that down to science, levers, frameworks, and inputs, it's very difficult. But if you implement what we talked about today, that's what you're doing. And through doing that over and over again, iterating it through time, maybe the culture of your organization can be as strong as one of those that I just mentioned. I mean, in its own way. Maybe your family can be just as joyful as the Golden State Warriors. or your team can be just as innovative as Apple or you know your religious group can be uh, just as faithful as you know, whoever you admire in, in the scriptures. Whatever it is for you, um, you can make your culture stronger by working within your cultural traits and implementing behaviors that will accentuate the good and mitigate the bad. So bad. So hopefully that wasn't too dense for all of you. I'm sure that I'll talk about more about I'll talk more about culture in upcoming episodes, but suffice it to say uh, culture is one of my favorite things to work with and I love making taking this ethereal thing and making it actionable and something that you can actually uh, influence the inputs to get the outputs you want. So um, happy culture building and we'll talk to you soon.